Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome everyone to episode 51 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean. Flying solo today as Chloe's got a few things on her plate at the moment, but we wanted to get an episode out to you guys sooner rather than later. We've had this one in the back pocket for such an occasion. It's something a bit different, but one I think everyone's going to enjoy, particularly after the uh, brutality of our last episode, uh, number 50 on the Bernies. We'll carry over any Patreon shoutouts until next episode and jump straight into things. Today I'm talking about an art heist in my home state of Victoria. This case happened right after I was born, actually, and while I have no direct recollection of it, I was educated on the events surrounding it when the ABC did a retrospective on it late last year. We'll link that video in the show notes alongside the article the ABC wrote, But it's very interesting in how it tells the story using these sort of contemporaneous news reports from the time. We'll include a number of those clips in this episode today. We've had a few requests for an episode that is more clip-based. Since we did our um, uh, special edition Patreon episode on Darren Hinch at the end of last year, actually, which was also quite clip-based. So this tale fits the bill. It's also very interesting listening back to the way Australians used to speak in the 80s. You know, you guys will get to hear that. It's intriguing to me how quickly our speech and accent has changed in such a short span of time, really. But we'll get to all of that. To begin this tale, we're going to go back to August 1986 in Melbourne, where the National Gallery of Victoria has just had their most recently acquired prized work of art stolen and received a ransom letter detailing the demands. Attention, Rank Matthews, MLA. We have stolen the Picasso from the National Gallery as a protest against the niggardly funding of the fine arts in this hick state and against the clumsy, unimaginative stupidity of the administration and distribution of that funding. Two conditions must be publicly agreed upon if the painting is to be returned. Number one, 
The Minister must announce a commitment to increasing the funding of the arts by 10% in real terms over the next three years and must agree to appoint an independent committee to inquire into the mechanics of the funding of the arts with a view to releasing money from its administration and making it available to artists. Number two, the Minister must announce a new annual prize for painting open to artists under 30 years of age. Five prizes of $5,000 are to be awarded. A fund is to be established to ensure that the real value of the prizes is maintained each year. The prize is to be called the Picasso Ransom. Because the Minister of the Arts is also Minister of Plod, we're allowing him a sporting seven days in which to try and have us arrested while he deliberates. There will be no negotiation at the end of seven days if our demands have not been met and our campaign continued. Your very humble servants, Australian cultural terrorists. Pablo Picasso was born in Spain on the 25th of October 1881. I don't think there'd be many people listening who haven't heard of him. He's a very famous painter and sculptor. Despite him being born in Spain, Picasso actually spent most of his life in France, swapping out his native churro for the croissant. Picasso's known for his pioneering efforts in cubism and collage. He had an extraordinary career, achieved universal acclaim, and amassed a fortune of French francs, making him a very rich man. His wealth probably only eclipsed by his fame as one of the most revolutionary artists of the 20th century. Without delving too deep into Picasso's life, I just wanted to mention a couple of brief things about his work so we can understand the painting as the uh, subject of this case a bit better. Picasso's works are generally categorised into time periods. These all seemed to run for a few years each and were defined by stylistic changes. There's a blue period, rose period, African influence period, there's a couple of different cubism periods after this, and then from 1932 onwards, he had a period where his style was reminiscent of stained glass. The stained glass period, we'll call it for argument's sake, although it appears the names of some of those later periods are often debated. In 1937, Picasso painted one of his most famous works, a painting called Guernica, which was a portrayal of the bombing of the town Guernica in Spain by German and Italian forces during the Spanish Civil War. Not long after painting this famous work, Picasso became intrigued with painting a series of pictures using his mistress, Dora Ma, as the model. This series of paintings would become known as The Weeping Woman. I'm not exactly sure how many there are in the series, but I know the most famous and elaborate of the series is located at the Tate Modern in London. This rendering was painted by Picasso on the 26th of October 1937 and is rich in reds, blues and yellows. But just over one week earlier, Picasso painted another weeping woman, slightly smaller and was described as an unsettling combination of acid greens and vibrant mauves, exaggerated by thick black outlines. It was this weeping woman that was purchased by the National Gallery of Victoria in 1985 for a staggering $1.6 million. The gallery acquired it and it was unveiled for viewing for the first time on the 6th of December 1985 to great fanfare. This is the weeping woman. 
In acidic green and purple, the painting portrays a woman convulsed by grief. It was painted four months after Picasso's most famous political work, Guernica, and it was forged from the same horrific subject matter, the infamous German attack on the ancient Basque city during the Spanish Civil War. According to the gallery, the weeping woman is the most important 20th century work it's acquired, and it's certainly the most expensive. So criticism is almost inevitable, but it's not about to dim the gallery's enthusiasm for its master work. I mean, we'd be terribly lucky if it went without any brouhaha at all. Um, uh, no, I mean, I think, I mean, uh, you know, someone asked me earlier today, we live in a Phil Phil Philistine um, uh, nation, but a civilized city. Um, so uh, we're a lot lucky here. I had to chuckle at the gallery director in that clip, Patrick McGacky, uh, his line about the Philistine nation but civilised society. As I said in the intro, it was a very different way of talking back then, almost this sort of aristocratic British tinge to the Australian accent. His is probably more accentuated than most, I think, but uh, it's like listening to those old newscasters or hearing someone like... I don't know, Donald Bradman speak. You know, our Aussie accent has certainly uh, evolved since then in quite a short uh, period of time, really. But anyhow, just eight months after the unveiling of The Weeping Woman, around the time I was probably soiling my first few packets of nappies, in August of 1986, this happened. The alarm system had been fooled with a fake card saying the painting had been moved routinely. Responsibility for removing the painting has been claimed by a group calling itself the Australian Cultural Terrorists. In a letter to sections of the news media today, the group demanded a massive increase in funding for the arts. Whatever they've done, if the picture is damaged or ruined in any way, then uh, this gallery will never be able to afford another Picasso painting. I can't imagine that anybody who had genuinely at heart the interests either of art or of art lovers could have perpetrated an action of this sort. This all happened sometime after closing on Saturday the 2nd of August. These thieves unscrewed the painting from the wall, apparently with some kind of specialised screwdriver. It presumably had these anti-theft type screws. And they simply walked out with it. It wasn't a big painting, so walking out with it under an overcoat or something was certainly conceivable. The culprits left a calling card saying that the painting was undergoing some routine maintenance. Of course it wasn't, but the thieves did enlighten the gallery with their moniker, the ACT. Not our capital territory, but the Australian cultural terrorists. Gallery director Patrick McGacky couldn't believe what he was seeing, or what he wasn't seeing more accurately. He immediately thought it was a prank and commenced a search of the gallery trying to locate the painting, but he couldn't. The gallery was clearly stunned by the theft because they didn't report it for three days. It took that long for it to sink in. By the time police arrived, theories were swirling. That's all there was, speculation. There was actually no evidence for them to work with. Was this an inside job? Someone at the gallery, perhaps? Was it a red herring? Something more serious afoot? Perhaps a series of heists? Or the ransom was a bit of a diversion? and they intended to actually smuggle the painting out of the country to sell it on the black market. But then they received the first ransom letter, and this is the one I read in the introduction, attention to Arts Minister Race Matthews, who they snidely referred to as Rank Matthews. The ACT wanted a 10% increase in funding for the arts, and the creation of an annual art prize worth $25,000 named the Picasso Ransom. There'll be no negotiation, the letter, dated 5th of August, said. At the end of seven days, if our demands have not been met, 
the painting will be destroyed. Minister Matthews promptly shot down any consideration of negotiating with the artistic terrorists, noting that they would be not budgeting with blackmail. So that aspect of dealings was seemingly dead in the water. The police investigation that ensued turned over no new leads that might assist in identifying the culprits. Numerous members of the art world were consulted, uh, but no one could shed any light on who would perform such a daring and brazen heist for this purpose. It was a day of dashed hopes. The gallery, far busier than usual as people came to see a notoriously blank wall, was searched thoroughly in the forlorn hope that the Picasso weeping woman had been hidden rather than stolen. There has been no more from the group claiming responsibility and threatening to destroy the painting next weekend if the demand for a bigger arts budget is not met. The frame, discarded after canvas and stretcher were removed, was examined by forensic scientists, but apparently yielded no clues. The value of the masterpiece has now been put at more than $2 million. It was not insured. The gallery could not afford the premium. Just a day after the National Gallery of Victoria's director, Patrick McCackie, confirmed that his most prized acquisition had gone, the 70 attendants at the gallery left too. The attendants objected to increased security measures, which meant they could no longer sit down on the job. They met this morning to consider a gallery plan that some, but not all, of their chairs be reinstated. But... The men have uh, rejected those proposals at present. Uh, they propose to meet again tomorrow morning. By then, union officials say, remaining differences should be worked out. So the gallery security or attendance, they went on strike, wanting their chairs back. In the ABC video, these guys, they kind of look like old timers. You know, I imagine this being sort of the holy grail of security gigs. You know, these guys had done their time at the, you know, the Burke Street Mall and when you got your stripes, the National Gallery gig was a pretty good one. You get your chair and you can just sort of sit sit down and, and read through the form guide while Peter and Beryl stroll through and look at some Jackson Pollocks. Now all of a sudden there's cameras, no seats, there's heists going down, Patrick McGackie's pacing the halls, so you know, they understandably crack the sads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As for the ongoing search for the painting, well, we saw a lot of speculation come into play at this point, people discussing what might happen to the weeping woman next. The operation was very sophisticated. The thieves apparently managed to neutralise the security wires attached to the picture and they were able to produce the security card that allowed them to move the weeping woman. But what could happen to the masterpiece now? With me a little earlier this evening was Sue Hewitt, Australian representative of Christie's. Miss Hewitt, if the ransom isn't achieved, what would be done with the painting? 
Well, of course, I do hope they're not going to do what they suggest they're going to do, but alternatively, I would... Let's destroy it. Let's destroy it, yes. I think that they would probably take it out of the country. Well, who'd buy it then? I think it'd have to be sold really through a, a sort of rather unscrupulous dealer because certainly it couldn't come up for auction because it's too public. We prepare our catalogues, illustrate them. We also would know about the history of the painting. You see, most of Picasso's works are well documented, you see, and it would be identifiable. Are there dealers who are well-known fencers? I'm sure there are. <laughs> so you've no doubt there would be a market for it? Oh, yes, but there's certainly nothing like its true market value. What happens then? Does it have to be viewed in a locked room with no one present? What value would the purchaser ever get from it? Well, I suppose a certain amount of um, a feeling of um, pride in owning something. Oh, of course, they can't share it with their friends, but it is it does happen, um, so it's not an unusual occurrence. And people buy a painting that they know to be stolen and then lock it away somewhere themselves? Absolutely. Well, what are the physical problems of it? It's on a stretcher, we understand. Does it then get sort of rolled up and slipped under the shoes in a suitcase? Well, certainly it'd have to be rolled up, because, but it, it, the problem is the paint. You know, if you are rolling it too tight, you could actually crack the paint and then eventually it would fall off. So it is very, very difficult to roll a, roll a canvas for any length of time. I mean, you've got to think it's 24 hours to get out of the country, really, in a suitcase. Do most people who've been involved with this sort of thing have the conservative skills to get the painting out without damaging it? Well, we've got to believe that these people are artists or in the art world, and so therefore they would have a certain knowledge of looking after paintings. Well, finally, what would you do if it came Christie's way? I'd ring the police, of course. Thanks very much. Thank you. Then, after another four days of silence, the second letter arrived. Good luck with your huffing and puffing minister, you pompous fathead. Read the note addressed to Mr Matthews, dated the 9th of August. This was one week after the heist. The letter which arrived this morning is undoubtedly genuine. The handwriting on the envelopes is the same, and the second letter repeats a phrase from the first ransom demand that was kept secret by the police. The letter addressed to Arts Minister Race Matthews says, If our demands are not met you will begin the long process of carrying about you the smell of kerosene and burning canvas. But the letter added cryptically that the theft of Weeping Woman was performed by a group whose first desire was to return the painting. But this afternoon, Mr Matthews was taking a hard line, saying police will hunt them down and that the so-called terrorists face... ...criminal charges carrying sentences of up to 10 years in jail. Later, the director of the National Gallery, Patrick McCackie, pointed out that the second letter was sent just before two $5,000 art prizes were offered yesterday. So he hoped the Australian cultural terrorists... ...would at least reconsider, would at least pause to consider the offer which has been made about those two art prizes. The deadline set by the thieves for the destruction of the painting runs out at 10 o'clock tonight. Mr McCackie says he'll be waiting by the phone at the gallery for any news of the weeping woman. Minister Matthews would receive a third letter just two days later, which simply said, thank you for your support, phase two begins shortly. So the seven-day deadline had been and gone by now, and most people were starting to think the painting was either destroyed, as the ACT had threatened, or it had indeed been smuggled out of the country. The gallery had been turned upside down in searches, and they'd found nothing. Patrick McGackie was still in a state of shock, the gallery had plans to upgrade security, apparently, right before this occurred. So, you know, there was probably this lingering feeling of guilt there, too. There were some tip-offs in the time after this. 
First off, there were reports of a few suspicious-looking people who'd been seen in and around the gallery uh, in the time before the theft. These reports were of a few different men, and the police worked with the witnesses to form some identikit images, which were later released to the public. These ultimately didn't result in any solid leads. Eight days after this, there was a tip-off from a postman saying that the painting was in Adelaide. Detectives attended the location in question to find dozens of weeping women replicas painted by local artists who seemed to share many of the same concerns as the ACT regarding arts funding. So these inquiries, amongst every other tip-off police had received, were also dead ends. That was until police received an anonymous phone call almost three weeks after the artwork's disappearance. This was on Wednesday the 20th of August 1986. It was a phone call last night to the Age newspaper that led police across the road to a locker at the Spencer Street station. Gallery director Patrick McGacky paced anxiously for the hour it took forensic experts to arrive and remove the parcel. It was examined at their headquarters and authenticated. This morning, the champagne flowed and the weeping woman was revealed undamaged by a jubilant director. It is going to be bolted to the wall uh, and placed behind glass. If you want to take the painting next time, you will have to take the entire air conditioning duct. The frame which the thieves had left behind at the time of the robbery made its way to the gallery for Saturday's public showing. Police later collected a letter sent to ABC TV News in Melbourne. It was identical to that included with the painting. It revealed that the saga had not ended. The Australian cultural terrorists claim we never look to have our demands met and the return completes the first phase of our campaign. Arts Minister Ray Matthews may also have been smiling today, but as Police Minister, he refused to toast the recovery. The $50,000 reward, he says, still stands for the capture of those who've promised to strike again. All Victoria's art treasures are going to remain at risk so long as these people um, remain at liberty. The irony of the whole matter, he says, is that money that may have gone to the arts must now be spent on gallery security. So the weeping woman was safe in locker 227 it had been discovered at Spencer Street Station. The ordeal was over, somewhat of an anti-climax, but a happy ending as the painting made its way back onto the walls of the National Gallery. Police later stated they believed the Australian cultural terrorists comprised of three and perhaps more people who were in the art world or on the fringe of the art world. Police also commented that two women were cited with a parcel near Locker 227 at Spencer Street, while the anonymous tip-off call was believed to have been placed by a man. Now, police say they believe the painting was put there at about 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning because a train traveller remembers seeing two women with a similar brown paper parcel discussing getting a locker at that time. That witness's descriptions have led to this sketch of a woman, aged mid-30s to 40s, about 170 centimetres tall, who was wearing a camel-coloured coat and, according to the witness, was with a shorter woman with similar coloured but longer hair. Police are hoping they can find others who can give clearer descriptions of the women they believed are involved in the theft of Weeping Woman. But at least now, they have stronger clues as to the identity of at least some of the Australian cultural terrorists. Or that there is three and perhaps more, as that we now have two women seen near the lockers with the parcel on Tuesday and we have a male who makes the phone calls. 
Police say even though the Australian cultural terrorists have returned their booty, they're still keeping five major crime squad detectives on the case. And that, police hope, will stop the ACT from doing anything else. Despite the swirling discussion of suspects, the case was eventually closed in 1989 with no offenders apprehended or identified. There were exhaustive inquiries prior to this. A $50,000 reward was offered and there were raids of a number of private galleries, but the offenders were still never formally identified. And I say formally because I get the impression that some folks might have an inkling as to the person or persons behind this. Patrick McCackie, who later wrote a memoir, he had a theory about a young Melbourne artist who uh, a dealer friend of his called him about in the days before the painting was returned. This dealer said the young artist might have some information about the theft. So McCackie visited this young artist and saw photos and newspaper clippings about the theft pinned up in his studio. McCackie said in his memoir, I said deliberately at least twice that the people who had taken the work could deposit it in a luggage locker at Spencer Street or at Tullamarine Airport. I always found it notable that within 48 hours of that visit, with the explicit advice about placing the work in a locker, the painting reappeared. Neil Holland, a former Victorian police forensic expert, he performed a number of examinations on the artwork and the letters in the time after this, and he's of the impression that police would have DNA on file to possibly solve this case in modern times, however, it'd have to be reviewed and deemed important enough to do so. Considering the time passed and the end result, that's probably not going to happen despite this case being described as Australia's greatest unsolved art heist. There's been a couple of other infamous art heists in Australia since this time too. There was a a theft of an entire private collection worth around $2 million, uh, I think that was in New South Wales, and the theft of a Franz van Meers self-portrait valued at $1.4 million from the uh, Art Gallery of New South Wales. That was in 2004. There's also been a number of films and novels made about this heist on The Weeping Woman. Uh, The films, there's been one called A Kink in the Picasso. It was sort of a comedic drama of sorts. And the Australian Film Commission funded a documentary called The Picasso Ransom. As far as novels go, Stealing Picasso by Anson Cameron, Cairo by Chris Womersley, And the last one I want to mention, The Guy, The Girl, The Artist and His Ex. This was by Gabrielle Williams. She actually interviewed a number of people for this novel and who it was said uh, that they may or may not have known or been involved in the heist. So again, I think there's probably a few people out there who probably have a good idea who might have been behind this. Spencer Street Station has since been completely redesigned and renovated. It's now called Southern Cross Station and the estimated value of the Weeping Woman painting is now somewhere in the vicinity of $100 million or more. An interesting case, one with some mystery still surrounding it. I'm particularly interested in these types of crimes because for me it harkens back to my interest in crime, which was actually originally in crime fiction, not true crime. I'm a big fan of the noir subgenre of crime writing, and I really love some of the famous heist-gone-wrong novels, Donald Westlake's Parker novels and closer to home Gary Dish's Wyatt novels. So these types of crimes always intrigue me, particularly when they're unsolved and there's sort of that, you know, that bubbling mystery still surrounding the case. As I said, I think there's a few people, probably Patrick McCackie himself, who have a reasonable idea who was behind this, but 
I suppose all's well that ends well. Uh, I'm not sure we'll hear too much about this case in the future, considering the end result, unless someone comes out and confesses to it for some reason. But that's it. That's the case of the Weeping Woman art heist. I'll do my best now to give you all a quick happy thought without Chloe having to force it out of me. Uh, My happy thought for this week is the humble cup of tea. We've been cycling through uh, different brands of tea, my wife and I, and we finally settled on a good brand, Nature's Cuppa. Uh, They do a nice English breakfast and an Earl Grey for when you're feeling particularly foppish, but uh, obviously nothing beats the loose leaf varietals. I know that, guys, so don't be coming at me with that. You know, we need to to balance convenience with quality, factoring our our little humans running around. So, yes, the cup of tea, despite it uh, parching both Chloe and myself during recording, that's my happy thought for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called truebluecrime-podcast or find us on Instagram by searching truebluecrime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. We live in a Philistine um, uh, nation, but a civilised city, Um, so uh, we're unlucky here. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.